Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the gospel according to Luke as we return to this gospel and turn over to chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Take your Bibles and turn there if you would. As we learn about the beginning of the ministry of a man that we have uh, learned about in his uh, pre-born state and then in his infancy, but now get to meet as an adult, namely John, or as we know him, John the Baptist. We're going to read verses 3, excuse me, verses 1 through 20 of chapter 3 this morning and uh, begin to look at this text as an introduction to this man, John This uh, seemingly quirky or different or unique man, and yet one who was these things because he was specifically sent by God with a mission and with particular instructions to carry out a vital part of God's redemptive plan and the proclamation of God's redemptive message in the world. And so Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, we read about him. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee and his brother was tetrarch of the region of Iterea and Trachonitis and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance For the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled. And every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight. And the rough roads smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, as for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I. And I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. 
But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. The show before the show, the opening act, the pre-show, these all serve a purpose in an event, an entertainment event, which is not just to provide you with more for your money, but to get you ready for the main event, to get you ready for the main act. This was the role of John the Baptist. John was sent specifically to be the forerunner for the Lord. He is the one who was sent to get the people ready for Jesus Christ. And you would think with such a messianic expectation, you would think with uh, such a hope that there would be someone who would come to rule over Israel and to redeem Israel, that there might not be much need for one more person to come along and get the people ready. And yet John is sent by God in order to do just that. This is an indication for us right from the start that there is something that needs to be done in the people of Israel before their Messiah can come to them and have the desired outcome that God wants. God doesn't just send the main act onto the stage and hope that everyone is ready for him to come. Clearly, they are not. And so John comes with a message that he is going to give the people, namely a message of repentance. A message that they need to turn from their evil ways and get ready. Now what those evil ways are may have been a surprise to them. We're going to learn about that as we go through this passage. But nonetheless, there were evil ways. They were living in sin. They were not honoring the Lord the way that they were supposed to. And this meant that they were not quite ready and really not fundamentally ready for Jesus to come. And thus God sends John into the world. When we last saw John, he was doing what is described in the last verse of chapter 1, verse 80. And it says, the child continued to grow and to become strong, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. We spent all of chapter 2 after that learning about Jesus' early life, Jesus' birth and his announcements to the shepherds by the angels and the shepherds telling Jesus' family and those around him the things that the angels had said. Uh, we learned about Jesus' very early life and his dedication at the temple when he was just 40 days old. We read about Jesus' interaction with the teachers at the temple when Jesus was 12 years old and then about his growth both up to that point of being 12 years old and then for the next 18 or so years of his life. And having learned about the rest of the childhood of Jesus, we now return our attention to the forerunner. Because God is not just now giving the background, now he is sending the message. He is sending his incarnate word and he is sending the opening act to get us ready for that word. To get us ready for Jesus. And John's message is that the Savior is about to come and the people need to get ready. Did you know that you have to get ready for Jesus? Did you know that there is only a certain type of person who Jesus will benefit when he comes to you? In Israel's case, it was only a people who would be ready when Jesus came to them physically. 
But there's a kind of preparation that has to take place in the heart of man before Jesus can come and bring you salvation, spiritually speaking. John wants to get the people ready for this, and so we do well to pay attention to his message. And his message is, the Savior is on the doorstep. You need to get ready because Jesus is coming. And he has a twofold message. You need to get ready by repenting, and there is hope of God's salvation coming for those who do. You need to get ready by repenting, and for those who do get ready, there is a hope of salvation that God is bringing in Jesus Christ. So in this text, John the Baptist appears to the nation of Israel, and we're going to focus on verses 1 through 6 this morning and learn about this man, what he was like, what was at the heart of his message, who he was speaking to, and the main things that he wanted to tell them before in coming weeks we look at what it means truly to repent, to turn, and to prepare your hearts for the Lord. And so we begin by considering John's surroundings in the first two verses. What was the environment into which John the Baptist stepped? You say, that's easy. He was in the desert. Well, there's a little bit more than the physical circumstances here because anybody in any age could just simply go to the desert and start preaching. But there was another type of desert, if you will. Uh, There was a spiritual desert. This is not so much Luke's message that there was a spiritual desert, but just a remark to demonstrate that there was a lot of dryness and emptiness when it comes to the nation of Israel at this time. They were an unholy nation. John's surroundings was an unholy nation. And it begins by the fact that there were unsanctioned rulers over them. We read about these in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch, Philip was tetrarch, Lysanias was tetrarch. Who are all of these people and when is this taking place? Well, the year was the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, which as nearly as we can tell would have been on the calendar A.D. 29, possibly 28, but most likely 29. And so it is uh, that this was Tiberius Caesar who was one of the Caesars descended uh, from Augustus. And he was, uh, he had appointed these people ultimately to be the rulers over the nation. Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. Now, Herod is a name that should sound familiar to you because this is a name that's been uh, referred to by multiple different people already before this time occurs. This would have been Herod Antipas who was, uh, who reigned from 4 BC to AD 39 in Tiberias, a long reign for this particular ruler. His family had been well connected to Rome. He was a descendant of Herod the Great. He was his son. And when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was split into various sections with these tetrarchs who would rule over them. Now, two of them are mentioned here as tetrarchs, Herod uh, and Philip, his brother. And then Luke also refers to Lysanias by the same title. Uh, But there is another ruler who is over one of these territories, Pontius Pilate. And we know him from what? We know him from the account some three years later of the time when Jesus was condemned to death. And Pilate is the one who tried to get himself out of the situation, but ultimately ended up sending Jesus to the cross. Well, originally... Archelaus, the son of Herod the Great, had been appointed over Judea upon Herod the Great's death, but he was so bad, he had uh, so many wrongdoings that he was removed from office by Rome and replaced with a series of Roman rulers. And here, Pilate was one of these 
rulers. He was what was known as a prefect. One writer clarifies what this was. It was, quote, an administrative financial officer in charge of collecting taxes and keeping the peace. This is what Pilate tried to do. He didn't do so well in certain respects with that. And it caused personal trouble for him and led to some complications which would lead to Jesus being crucified. But these were the rulers at that time. And what you notice about them is that these are rulers who are not supposed to be rulers. Not that they're not supposed to be rulers according to Rome, but they're not supposed to be the ones in charge in Israel. These are not the kind of people that Israel had in mind all the way in the Old Testament when God set up their government. He sent them into the land and he set certain rulers over them and then eventually he set a king over them. And there were supposed to be those kind of people ruling the nation. But instead, what you have are these guys. And what this shows us is that things are not as they should be in Israel. David's son is not on the throne. There was a line for hundreds of years of David's sons ruling over Israel from Jerusalem. And that is not the case anymore. Because a few centuries earlier, Israel had been so rebellious that they were conquered, taken captive to Babylon. And when they came back, they never were able to reestablish the monarchy. This also shows us that foreigners are oppressing Israel. And Rome, not the Jews, ultimately decides who is ruling. This was the political circumstance of the day. It's a reason why Israel wanted redemption, but it wasn't the heart of the problem. It was a symptom of the problem. It was a symptom of the fact that Israel was in rebellion against God and that God had not yet restored them to the place that he had promised them to be. But it isn't just the formal governors who are out of alignment. It's also the religious rulers. We find in verse 2, unsanctified religion. This was the status of Israel when John came. There was unsanctified religion. We read here about the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Annas and Caiaphas. Annas had been the high priest from the years 6 through 15. Rome removed him. His son-in-law, Caiaphas, became the high priest three years later, starting in the year 18, and was the high priest through the year 36. The Jews at the time really viewed Annas as the proper high priest, even though he had been removed from office. And the two of them functioned together with Annas having a very uh, high degree of control behind the scenes. And this is why Luke can say in the high priesthood uh, of Annas and Caiaphas, both of them were understood to be ruling together, uh, serving as high priest. These two were evil people who would a few years later conspire to put Jesus to death. And they were not concerned with honoring God, but just enriching and empowering themselves, even if they maybe deceived themselves into thinking that they were doing service to God. So there were rulers who were evil in terms of the religious rulers. And of course, during this time, there were all kinds of religious teachers who were claiming to teach the law of God accurately and yet were teaching error or teaching outright heresy they were teaching wrong things about God and they were modeling ungodliness for the people and hypocrisy this is the scene onto which John bursts the people following priestly leaders who were leading them astray serving themselves and not benefiting the people and so there were governmental reforms that were needed, but there were religious reforms that were needed as well. And this is what God intended to do when he sent John into the nation and ultimately then when he sent Jesus as well to show where the nation had gone wrong. 
So those are John's surroundings. What was John sent to be then? What was he sent to be? What was his office? Let's consider that next. John's office was that of a prophet of God's word. A prophet of God's word. It says in verse 2, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias. John had been living in the deserts, of course, until this time. He had an interesting life. He was prophesied before his birth to drink no wine or liquor. Uh, Jesus, later on in Luke's gospel, says that John didn't eat bread. This wasn't like a low-carb thing. He just was eating a unique diet that was characteristic of standing out on purpose. Mark 1.6 says that he was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. That was what he ate. He lived in the desert and he ate these things. This is someone who lived a very unusual life. He may have been as well under a Nazarite vow, according to the Old Testament prescription for that, uh, for his entire life, much like Samuel the prophet and judge. But there's no way to know that for sure. Ultimately, though, it wasn't these things that were most significant about, them, about him, even though they stood out. Rather, the most significant thing about John is that the word of God came to him. The word of God came to him in a particular message that was preparatory for Jesus Christ. Notice here the way that this is described. The word of God came to John. This does not tell us that John went looking for the word of God or for God to speak to him. John wasn't straining to get this and he wasn't training to get this. He most certainly didn't go say, God, please give me a message about Jesus because I know his coming and I need to tell the people something. Instead, it comes as a one-way communication, a one-way street. God gave this divine revelation. God revealed this truth to John, and this is the way that he does this. When he sends a message to a prophet, he decides that he is going to give this information to this person so that they can take this message and they can communicate that to God's desired audience. And when it comes, because it is God's word, it is authoritative. It is perfect. It is without error. God speaks and he speaks clearly and plainly. He has no trouble speaking. He doesn't stammer. He speaks very, very clearly. And every word that he says is true. And so when he speaks, everyone needs to listen. John is a prophet. But this is not just someone who predicts the future. This is someone who, though sometimes predicting the future, sometimes speaking about what will happen, this is someone who speaks forth divine revelation. That's what a prophet is. The word literally in the English comes from the words that are behind it that mean to speak forth. This is the source, the, the origin of this idea. And uh, you take God's word that has been revealed directly to you and you tell other people about it. Again, sometimes this contains truth about the future, but other times it simply means that you are applying this truth, you are speaking this to this present situation. John is introduced then as a prophet, and he is introduced like many of the other Old Testament prophets. Notice here, it came to John, the son of Zacharias. Much like many Old Testament prophets were introduced as the son of their father as well. And so as for John... He was a prophet, but he was a unique prophet. He was a prophet between two ages, if you will. And it's a very significant moment in revelatory history, in the history of God revealing truth. Uh, in one sense, John is the last of the Old Testament prophets because 
He came before Jesus. He preached a message that was meant to lead up to Jesus. He came and he preached before the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell believers. And so he preached a message that was preparatory for Christ rather than following after him. But really, at the same time, even though in one sense he's part of the Old Testament prophetic lineage, he is much more part of the presentation of Christ. And that is his entire purpose. And he's attached to Jesus inseparably. This was recognized not just by John or by the people of the time, but even such others as the Apostle Paul, who said these words later on. In Acts 13, he's preaching to the synagogue. He says, uh, starting in verse 23, From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Paul understood what was true, which was that John's message is part of the message of Jesus Christ. And so John came in order to get the people ready for him. John chapter 1, excuse me, Luke chapter 1, verse 15 his father, Zacharias, had been told he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he'll turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He had said as well in chapter 1 verse 76... You, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Hold that thought for just a moment. John is introducing the beginning of something major, an entirely new era, and he says, Jesus is here, get ready for him. So what is the heart of John's message in preparing for Jesus? What did John want the people to understand? John's message is laid out for us in verse 3. It is there in verse 3, namely, a baptism of repentance for forgiveness. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And I just want to touch on these three main words, baptism, repentance, and forgiveness. All of these being vital to what John said to the people. All of us vital to understanding the response to Jesus Christ. Baptism was a distinguishing mark of John's ministry. John came and really introduced baptism from a biblical perspective. Now, John would not have been the first person ever to put people underwater for religious purposes. But this is the first place where really this is introduced in this way in the Bible. What is baptism? Well, fundamentally, it just simply means immersion. This is literally what the word means is to put water, put someone in the water or through the water or underwater to immerse someone or something. Why is it that John is ministering around the Jordan, around the river? This is so that he could actually immerse people, so that he could put people underwater. There is a picture 
of burial in the New Testament, a picture of burial with Christ in baptism where a person goes under, buried with Christ. And in that case, we die with Christ. But uh, baptism and burial have in common that they put you under. There was, of course, no running water in Israel or anywhere else during this time, at least in the modern sense, um, such as could be piped in. But there was water. And if sprinkling or even pouring was John's means, surely they could have carried this out and brought this anywhere. And yet this is not the way that John operated. According to Matthew chapter 3, verse 6, John uh, was baptizing people not at the Jordan River, but in the Jordan River. And so they would go down into the river. You say, well, maybe, I, uh, maybe they would go into the river and then sprinkle the water from the river or pour the water over them. Well, that may be the case if that was all there were. But John 3.23, John is said to be baptizing in Anon near Salim, quote, because there was much water there. Because there was much water there. Which would seem to indicate that John is concerned to make sure that he can actually put people under it. Now, of course, most of you here uh, understand this to be the case, but it is simply worth mentioning that this is what the word means. And so we would believe that this is the proper mode of baptism to immerse people under the water, doing what John did then and what Jesus would later do. But this is the message that John proclaimed, and this is what he was doing. People would go out to him. They would go down in the river. He would be in the river with them. He would put them under the water in some way or another, and then they would come back up. And they would, by so doing, identify with his message, which symbolized, as we'll see in a moment, the forgiveness of sins. So baptism was a crucial part of his message, which then, of course, is why he came to be known as John the Baptist. The next part that Luke highlights is repentance. Repentance. And this is really hard to overstate as what is missed by so many people in their understanding of what God expects from them today. Repentance is the word that you say if you want many people to to, uh, step back and say you can't tell people to do that. You can't tell people to repent. The world mocks at repentance because we are, it's caricatured as some type of insane doomsday preacher's message. But sadly, many people in the church speak against repentance because they claim that to preach repentance is to add works to the message of God's grace. And this simply is not the case. John was not the only one who preached the gospel of repentance, or he preached a message of repentance. But he did not see repentance as contrary to the message of the forgiveness of sins. There's nothing here about John saying you must repent to earn your sins being removed. He connects repentance rather with your sins being forgiven, with your sins being graciously taken away. But many are hesitant or even directly averse to telling people that they have to repent in order to be saved, in order to be forgiven. And so uh, sometimes you will hear the word repentance taught something like this, uh, that repentance means a change of mind because the Greek word is two parts. One means change and the other means mind. Well, uh, first of all, this is not what the word 
was used, uh, not how the word was used regularly in the scriptures or in extra biblical literature, uh, but this is also a mistake on a language level, on a linguistic level. This is not the way that words operate. You don't take the first part of a word and the second part of a word and say, well, this is just what the word means if you combine these things. If you add this and you add that, then you get that. Um, Unfortunately, though, this is what people will fall for. Words don't possess meanings in this way. Think about the words in our language. A word like the word disease. The word disease. What does it mean? Well, it means a lack of ease, yes, but there's much more than that. There's an underlying cause. There's something that causes you to not be at ease. And so it is much more than just the sum of its parts. And the way that words change over time and language is used means that you are you are badly oversimplifying if you simply say that a word that possesses the parts of change in mind never means anything more and has not come to mean more. And in fact, it has come to mean much more. Because it's not just a change of mind, but rather it's a change of mind that leads somewhere. It's a change of direction. Many of you know that this is a change of mind that leads to a change of life. It's a change of the inner man, a reversal of course. Repentance means I'm going this way, I'm thinking this way, I'm living this way, and my entire person is turning and going the other way. Unfortunately, though, people will cling to this idea that repentance is merely changing your mind because they want to preach a message that says all you have to do is change your mind about Jesus. You have to go from not believing in him to believing in him, or you just have to go from not thinking that he's Christ, to thinking that he's Christ. And as long as you just change your mental understanding of who he is, that's repentance. In essence, then, it adds nothing to the idea of faith. It's just another way to express that you believe something different according to that teaching. But the Bible doesn't intend repentance to duplicate faith. It intends repentance to complement faith. To be the other side of the coin of believing. When you believe the truths about Christ, you don't just mentally affirm them and assent to them and say, yes, I agree with you, that's true. What do you do when you repent? You say, because these things are true about Christ, I can't live like this anymore. I can't live the same way. I've sinned and I know who Jesus is and I know what that means for me. And so if I'm coming to him in faith, that same heart is going to say, I have to live differently. I have to change the way I think about everything. And change the way that I live. Repentance is not merely changing of the information that's in your head or what you would affirm. It is the turn of heart that flows from a right understanding of who God is. Now understandably people are concerned to make sure that when people hear the gospel and they hear the instruction to repent. That they don't think well I have to get my life together before Jesus will accept me. And sadly, many people do fall for this kind of error as well. They hear God say, you can't do that, you must do this. And they think, I have to be good for a certain amount of time before God will forgive me. They think I have to make up for my good or my bad works and do some good works before God is okay with me and before I can find his favor. And that is an error to avoid. And this is why it's so important that we distinguish between repentance on the one hand and the fruit of repentance or the works that flow from repentance. Look down, if you will, with me. Just a few verses in verse 8. John is going to tell the people, therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance. 
in keeping with repentance. There is a difference between the root and the fruit. There's a difference between the nature of a tree and the kind of fruit that it produces. And so it is with repentance. If you have a repentant heart, you will produce deeds that flow from that. If you have an evil heart, you'll produce deeds that flow from that. So repentance is not the same thing as the actions that you take afterward. Repentance is just the moment of turning. It aligns and overlaps with the moment of putting your faith in the gospel, of your faith in Christ, of trusting in his saving work. And at the same time as you say, I must be forgiven by God because of all that I've done and I trust that Christ will forgive me. At that same moment you say, I also need to change my life and not do the same things as I did before. And in that moment, your sins are washed away. Not after you've repented and been living a Christian life for two weeks, not after you've done 82 good deeds, but instead in that moment. Repentance is a vital part of John's message. It's not just a vital part of his message either, though. It's a vital part of the gospel message. It's a, the message that continued to be proclaimed even after Christ had uh, come on the scene and finished his earthly ministry and ascended to heaven and after the gospel was spreading to the nations. Uh, Acts 11, verse 18 the Jews hear about the Gentiles believing the gospel and they say, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. The Apostle Paul in Acts 20 verse 21 summarized his message by saying that he had been solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, turn from sin to God and self-reliance into trusting Jesus Christ. This is what needs to take place. Repentance. Do you need to repent? Uh, that's not just an abstract general question. Of course, the answer to that is, yes. Does one need to repent? Of course, everyone needs to repent of their sins. But do you need to repent personally? Have you repented? Have you ever turned from your sins? Have you ever said, I am not living this life, but I'm living for God? Have you recognized the sins that you've been living in and said, I don't just need them forgiven and I don't just need to trust Christ as a savior, but I need to recognize that God is my master and I can't live this way if I'm going to say that I want these sins forgiven. The time is now to repent. If you've already repented, there's great comfort to be found because the response of repentance leads to this third component of John's message, which is the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. This is a cancellation of guilt. It is a pardon. It is getting rid of punishment. Um, Israel didn't realize this, but they needed their sins forgiven. Some of them knew. Some of them recognized it. Maybe some of them understood in theory, but at their heart, they didn't really understand how desperate their need was, but they needed to have their sins forgiven. This really is fundamental to the message of the gospel. It is our greatest need. We need to have our sins forgiven. You must have your sins forgiven. That is the heart of the gospel. When Jesus was sent into the world, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God was reconciling the world to himself. He says, 
not counting their trespasses against them. We need it to where God doesn't treat us according to our evil deeds. We need to be forgiven of those sins. And so it was with Israel. And so it is also with every person. And this is still the same message after Jesus' resurrection. Luke 24, 47. Jesus says that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. That's the message. Repent and have your sins forgiven. Acts 5, 31. He is the one that God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now, what a blessing it is to have your sins forgiven, and yet what a demand it is to repent. And I think that this idea of repentance uh, can be hard to hear sometimes because it is a challenging message. It's a challenging message. It's telling you to stop doing things that you might find easier to do and to do things that might be harder to do. And we can maybe hear this and think that God is being a little bit of a killjoy, that God is really just out to control and that he's not out for our interests, but he is out for his own only. And this is the perspective that the world portrays toward repentance, that God just doesn't want you to enjoy your life. That's really what this is all about, constraining you. When in reality, repentance and preaching of repentance is an act of God's mercy. Because if God just wanted the worst for other people, then he wouldn't send anybody at all to tell you to repent. Think about the prophet Jonah. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. And what does Jonah do? He says, no. Say, why? Well, because he doesn't like them. Well, is that because you don't want to associate with them? No, it's because Jonah knows something. So Jonah runs away and God says, you're not going to get away with that. You're going to go back. I'm going to force you to want to go back because it's less bad than what's going to happen to you if you run away. So Jonah basically gets constrained uh, more or less against his will to go back to Nineveh. And he goes and he threatens the city. And he says, in 40 days, this city is going to be overthrown. And what did the people do? They turn from their wicked ways. They humble themselves. They are contrite before God. They say, let's put away these evil things and repent. And what does God do? He shows compassion to that nation, to that city. Why didn't Jonah want to go? Because he hated the Ninevites. He didn't want to tell them to repent. But God wanted him to tell them to repent because God loved the Ninevites. And he wanted them to repent so that their sins would be forgiven. God was benevolent toward them. He was compassionate. But he understands that people must turn to him. This is the way that he has declared things to be. They can't just continue to live in defiance of their creator and be well off. They have to turn to him. But God doesn't want people to stay in their sins. God loves people to turn and to repent. He says in Ezekiel 18, 23, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? God wants you to repent. He says in Luke 15, 7, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In 2 Peter 3, 9 the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to what? Repentance. And in fact, 
The book of Romans tells us in no uncertain terms that it is God's kindness that pushes us in this direction. Romans 2 verses 3 and 4, but do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The kindness of God leads you to repentance. This is not a message that, uh, as some often put it, means you must lead people to repentance by virtue of only being kind to them. This is not an indication that we should never say things that are hard for people to hear. That's not what this is talking about. It's saying that the way that God treats you, his patience with you, his tolerance, is not for the end that you would just be able to do whatever you want. The goal is to give you time to actually escape from the judgment that you are accumulating for yourself. God wants repentance enough for you that he's willing to wait patiently. And he's willing to endure people's rebellion for longer and longer because he wants people to turn and to have their sins forgiven. And that is the message that John brought. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now what Israel would not have known at this moment, but that John was soon to proclaim, is that he was announcing the coming of the one who would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John proclaimed Jesus not just in preparing for him, but as the Messiah who would be the substitutionary sacrifice so that the forgiveness of sins would not just be by God's declaration, but that there would be a payment for those sins. Jesus came into the world to be that payment. And when you put your faith in him, you're putting your faith in him not just as a good leader or as someone that you follow or even as the rightful king or even as just a generous sacrifice, but as one who bore the weight of your sins. This is what John proclaimed. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And notice who it is that he was preaching to. He came into all the district around the Jordan, which is the area of the territory of Israel. We've seen this before already in Luke's gospel, but just to remark again, if people in Israel heard this message, their first thought might be, why don't you go to all those Gentile nations who don't care about God? And John says, well, you might be called the people of God and you might have the word of God, but you don't really care about God either unless you're repentant and you listen to the message that I bring you. So John says, you need repentance too. You can have God's standards and still need to repent. You can know the Bible and still need to repent. You can know God in many ways and know much about him and still need to repent. The Messiah is coming, he says, and you need to be ready. And this is John's purpose, to clear out the way. He cites here, Luke does, that John is a fulfillment of this message given in Isaiah chapter 40. John's purpose is preparing the way for the Lord, just like it is promised that would come. Verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Now there's a little bit of uh, wordsmithing and, uh, and wise usage going on here. In Isaiah chapter 40, uh, there's just the idea in general of crying out in the wilderness, crying out in the wilderness, get this ready, make this ready 
in the wilderness such that the preparation takes place in the wilderness. But Luke takes advantage of the fact, as do the other gospel writers, that John was not just talking about the wilderness, but that he was there when he was proclaiming the message. And so he adopts the language of the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was common of the day and connects not just the preparation with the wilderness, but he actually connects the voice with the one who is in the wilderness, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And so it was not just said to get ready there, but one was there already who was speaking the message. And what does he say? He says, get ready. He is announcing his coming. He is announcing his coming. And then he is arranging his path. He says, the king is coming and you need to get this road ready to go. Fill in the gaps, move the dirt down from the hills and the mountains and make this a flat road. I've been waiting for several years now uh, because there is a promised overhaul of the main road leading off of Kingston Pike down toward the neighborhood in which we live. And they've been saving, it seems, or so they say, for years and years, setting aside budgeted funds so that they might one day take this dangerous road that has curves and slopes and up and down and they might straighten it out and flatten it out and widen it and make it just so much safer to drive upon not to mention more convenient and that's the idea here to make it easier to travel upon he says fill the ravines bring the mountains down and make a straight easy path for the Lord to come to his people Now, this is kind of speaking in general terms, but the application here is obviously intended to be spiritual when it comes to John's purpose because he's saying, look, the people are going to make it really difficult to have the right response when Jesus shows up. When Jesus comes, is he going to find a straight, flat, smooth road or is he going to get objections at every point? Is he going to find people who won't believe what he says and who oppose him and who don't think he's the Messiah Or is he going to find people who are immensely receptive to him? He says, you guys need to get ready. You need to be the ones who respond to him by clearing the way. And the way to do that is not for the people to make a physical change of a literal road in this particular occasion in history. But rather, they are supposed to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Lord. And they do so how? Well, what's John's message? Repentance. Turn from your sins and open your heart to one who is going to tell you the kind of person that you ought to be. And uh, John brings this preparatory message because there is something that he has to announce and that people need to be ready for. And this is the blessing of the text. All flesh will see the salvation of God. All flesh will see the salvation of God. You need to prepare and you need to repent because God is bringing salvation. But he doesn't just bring it to any old person. God brings salvation to those who are willing to receive him in their hearts. Those who are willing to humble themselves under his terms. Those who recognize their need of salvation. Those who don't want to cling to their sin. But instead those who are eager to see salvation. And as he says, this salvation will come. And it isn't just notice for this nation, but it is for who? All flesh. Now, in the original context in Isaiah, he does seem to be referring to the nation. The whole nation is going to see this, which is something that God intends to fulfill. But Luke uses this type of language and this kind of theme to describe the fact that this salvation is not just for Israel, but for who? Anyone and everyone. 
And all flesh will not only see the salvation of God as he comes and rescues that particular nation, but all flesh, we learn more and more in the New Testament, will get to experience that salvation. Anyone from any nation who turns from their sin and puts their hope in Christ will see the salvation of God. And what an amazing thing it is that God would stoop down to sinners like us and go to the effort of sending a man like John to prepare hearts and then, of course, sending his son into the world. And so with all of this in view, will you still hold on to your sins or will you repent? Will you still be self-sufficient or will you put your hope in Christ? What is the answer? I think it's obvious what we need to do. Humble ourselves before God, recognize our need of forgiveness, and look to the one he has so graciously sent to be our Savior. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for his predecessor or his forerunner who got the way ready for him. May we not have any obstacle in our hearts to Jesus Christ and responding to him by faith. And may you be pleased with the way that we respond to him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.